0: Welcome to Talking Pictures. My name is Christian Genzel. I'm a filmmaker and film journalist from Salzburg, Austria. Talking Pictures is a podcast series in which I talk to the people who made some of my favorite movies. Today's guest is Aaron Lipstadt, best known from the mid 80s onwards as a director on popular TV shows like Miami Vice, Quantum Leap, Law & Order, Crossing Jordan, The 4400, Bosch or Elementary. As a producer-director, he also worked on shows like The Marshall, The Division, Medium, and Grimm. In our interview, however, we go back to the beginning of Aaron's career, to an independent little science fiction gem called Android, which came out in 1982 and was compared by film critic Roger Ebert to cult debut films like George Lucas's THX 1138 and John Carpenter's Dark Star. Android was produced by Roger Corman and starred Klaus Kinski as a mad scientist working on a lifelike robot called Max. The Android was played by Don Upper, who also co-wrote the screenplay and then a few years later became a cult figure as Bounty Hunter Charlie in the Critias series. In our conversation, Aaron recalls how he learned the ropes at Roger Corman's company and how Android came together. He discusses working with Kinski, talks about the ideas and themes of the movie and much more. Aaron also discusses his follow-up film City Limits, a post-apocalyptic action picture that, as he says, almost killed his career. And he recalls how he became involved with television directing, starting with an episode of Miami Vice. The interview was conducted in connection with our German-language podcast Lichtspielplatz. So if you speak German, please visit Lichtspielplatz.at and check out episode number 63, which features an in-depth discussion of Android. Also, make sure to listen to my interview with Barry Opper, the producer of Android and Critters, here on Talking Pictures. If you enjoy my conversation with Aaron Lipstadt, please visit TalkingPicturesPodcast.com to check out more interviews and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. So without any further ado, here is Aaron Lipstadt. So Aaron, before we get into Android and to the film... um, i'd like to talk a little bit about your background um i read on your webpage that you studied political science and international relations and then you went on to work for roger corman's company and that Uh i think must have been a very unusual development how do you go from political science to
1: roger corman well um it it, i'm sure it sounds weirder than it actually was but um (laughs) the the university i went to had a very prominent and active film society and i got involved um I mean, I was interested in movies, so I got involved with them pretty soon and um, just watched a lot of movies, talked about a lot of movies. That was sort of my extracurricular activity more than anything else. And so when I graduated, um, I had kind of been preparing for to go to law school. And at the last moment, I decided that was not for me. I had worked in the law school library when I was um, in college. That was my my student job. And being around that environment did not make me want to continue in it. (laughs) So uh, at the last minute, I pivoted and I applied to uh, Northwestern University, which had a a program in film theory and criticism. Mm -hmm. So I, um, I applied to the doctoral program there and got accepted and got a master's and spent another two years doing research for a doctorate, which I decided, again, this is not what I want to be doing. I had in my, for my research, I was trying to combine some aspects of my political science and economics background with, um, with my interest in movies. And and I had been studying in England and I decided I really wanted to do something that was very American. I didn't want to do a very theoretical subject that was, you know, um, more or less abstract. I want to do something very specific. So I got interested in low budget movies mm-hmm. and the, um, the economics of how they were distributed and how they were made and how that might affect their political content. And that, not too difficult, without too much difficulty led me to Roger Corman and New World (laughs) Pictures. So I met people there and one of them, Roger's assistant said, Oh, you should get a job here. You know so much about this company. So that was that route.
0: (laughs) So you never finished your thesis?
1: I never finished. No, Uh, that's too bad. It would have been interesting to read. Well, it was published. I mean, as much as I got done was published, the um um the British Film Institute did a series on Corman, mm-hmm. on New World. And um uh, a friend of mine at the at the education department at the BFI knew about what I was doing, and, and he he and I collaborated on the season at the BFI at the National Film Theater and a monograph on Corman. So some mm-hmm. of it is some of it exists <laughs> <Okay>. in print. <laughs>
0: So during your time at Corman's at company, you were involved with quite a few uh, uh, cult movies. Um, and it, what's interesting, I mean, Corman is very much known for launching the careers of so many young filmmakers. I mean, um, Peter Bogdanovich, and Martin Scorsese and Francis Ford Coppola, uh, Robert Towne, all of these people started out at his company. So when you were there, was there a feeling of, this could be this huge stepping stone?
1: Um, yeah, a lot of pe- people, people were, were definitely aware that, um, you know, of the history at that time, you know, even more recently, um, Joe Dante, Jonathan Demme, Alan Arkish had gone through the company. So people were very aware that it was a, it was a way to move up. And There were a lot of, there's a lot of sort of battlefield humor, you know, about getting promoted and, and producing, you know, you know, Roger, Roger prided himself on hiring people who were sort of quick witted and had a. Good background in film or good education and could kind of um roll with the punches and respond quickly so um people did move up quickly when you know when there was an opportunity i mean you know of course you don't hear about the hundreds of people who worked there and you know never had a career or didn't have Mm -hmm. an illustrious career but um yeah people were aware that uh you know Roger is making it sometimes, you know, four or five, six movies a year. So there's a lot of opportunities, you know, the movies are made in four or five weeks. Um, A lot of times, if you, if you did a good job, you'd move on. You know, you wouldn't stay there and do 10 pictures for Roger. It wasn't that kind of place. You'd do your Mm -hmm. picture and then you'd hope to get a, to get a better offer because partly because you never, you made extraordinarily little money. (laughs) So, so you did it as, a, as an education, but you couldn't you couldn't have a career there because you you know you didn't make enough to p- put gas in your car. Mm.
0: But interestingly, the time that you were there, I think, is sort of like the last the last period of Corman's production company, where you really have a lot of people there um, who are sort of graduated to much bigger things. I think it gets. M- I mean, he's he's done so many films after that. But you hear uh, there are less and less people who actually go on to do better things or bigger things.
1: Yeah, it's true. I mean, I I I don't keep up actively with a lot of the people that, that were there when I was there. But I certainly I'm, I'm aware of a lot of them. There are a lot of people who stayed in the film business and be, you know became directors or writers or editors or producers. But none of them, since I'd say Jim Cameron, achieved mm. that kind of you know international um reputation that roger was kind of known for jim was kind of I'm trying to remember that anybody after jim who who really had a a career that you would that was kind of and, and I, don't, I don't know why that is it's partly not long after that roger sold the company and he started a new company but i don't think it was the same when he had that studio in venice those whatever it was five years or so mm. it was it was just a blast i was i'm very very happy that i could experience that it was really fun
0: so, what did you take away from that? What they call the Corman School of filmmaking? Oh, oh, <laughs>
1: I mean, <laughs> I, you know, I had I had come there literally from writing a doctoral thesis, so about as academic as you can get. I had um, I didn't go to a, a filmmaking school. You know, Northwestern was a theory program. We did have one 16 millimeter filmmaking course, but it was very rudimentary, um, and it was you know it was it was not designed to you know, it was not, it was not a a craft program. It was not designed to give you a career in filmmaking. It was designed to give you an academic career. So when I got there and, you know, I started out basically as a PA, um, I didn't know what the equipment was. I didn't know the set etiquette. I didn't know really what editing was. I mean, I knew theoretically and I had made my short, but, um, to be able to be on set every day, watch the dynamic of how things are done, watch the relationship between a director and actors, director and crew, how a film comes together—it was um, it was invaluable. And so, by the time I got a chance to direct, it wasn't so much that I knew how to be a, a you know an expert filmmaker, but what I really knew is what not to avoid, the pitfalls to 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 mm-hmm. stay away from. Um, and believe me, you know, I, I look back on myself then, and you know, I'm very happy that I learned more <laughs> since then and and had a chance. I mean, you know the the main takeaway is I had to have a career as a director for my you know entire adult life. i never I never had a desk job, really. I mean, I, I was at a desk working for Roger when I first got there. I was his assistant. But you know, since then, um, I've had to have a I've got to have a career where I never had to go to an office and never had to you know worry about oh it's five o'clock time to go home I always had I've, I've been freelance for most of my career and been able to keep working and and that's what I got from that which is you know it's an incredible gift to be able to do mm-hmm. something you really love and and um fall into that a lot of it's luck of course you know you have you're, you're at the right place at the right time you know I meet someone who works with Roger she says you should get a job here she says Roger I met this guy you know he's smart I mean I Roger knew me I'd interviewed him for you know for my thesis mm-hmm. but um but she made it so that I got the next job that opened up, and that led mm-hmm. to you know one thing led to another.
0: Mm, I see. Yeah, and quite a quite a few of the films that you worked on during your time there have become sort of cult classics in their own right. I think with Galaxy of Terror or uh, the Slumber Party Massacre, where you even appear as an actor, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you know that I only appeared in that movie because we didn't have money to hire a stuntman. <laughs> that's 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 literally the truth. You know, we had this one stunt where a guy gets fall down, thrown down the stairs. And I said, oh, how are we gonna pay for that? I'll do it. That's 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 the way that happened. But you know, it's funny because I've I've seen um I've seen most of those movies recently. You know, they've all come out on DVD and uh um and I know their reputation and I still can't I can't believe it because I think they're just as flawed now as they were then. They show <laughs> they show the uh, the the creative restraints of not having any money and not having any time. <laughs>
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are certainly B-movies, but they're fun. And I think what's interesting is the creativity. I think what's interesting is looking at the films and knowing... Um, just the restraints that you mentioned that, uh, yeah. how they could do this with so little money with uh, just no, you know, nothing which was available to them.
1: Well, what's amazing to me is that they, that I look back and I think it was like a playground for the, you know, 50 or hundred of us who were down there at the time. We got to do this and have <laughs> such a good time and get paid for it. And to think that anybody else will watch these movies and think they're, you know, fun to watch, is just, it's just gravy, it's just a bonus. <laughs> For me, it was just the experience. It was like going to, you know, going to movie camp.
0: Mm-hmm. No, Android grew out of that Roger Corman experience, and a lot of the people that you worked with on the film were, I think, also uh, from the the movies that you worked on with Corman, from uh, oh, like Galaxy of Terror and stuff. But it's still a very different film than um, the other Corman films at the time. So, how did the film get started? How did that come together?
1: Well, that's that. You know, generally. The way Roger would make movies at that time was, you know, he'd have, you know, first of all, you know, at that in the early late '70s, early '80s, the way Roger distributed movies, and this changed very quickly in that period of the '80s, and that's one of the reasons why he, he sold his company and got out when he did. But he would make movies; re- he would distribute movies regionally. One of the reasons Roger could make money because he was also the distributor, so he wasn't he wasn't taking a percentage; he controlled distribution, and he would make some you know 200 prints of a movie and um he would distribute it you know the 200 prints would start in the southeast US and then they move to the south and then move to the west and then move to the midwest and then move to new england you know so he didn't have a big investment in prints and he would move them around mm-hmm. and he wanted to do something that could play quickly that had a very clear concept that you know didn't need reviews so he would literally have a list of five titles and he'd send PAs, which basically means you know, twenty-two-year-old kids just out of college, to Westwood, which is an entertainment center or Hollywood, you know, where people go to the movies, and they'd literally go to people in line to go to the movies. And say, which of these movies do you want to see? And you'd say, you know, StarQuest, Galaxy of Terror, Planet of Horrors, Viking Women on the Moon, whatever you know, and he would see what movies what what people said. Oh, that sounds good. And so he would start with a title that he thought would sell. Mm-hmm. And then either he or some writer would come up with an idea that matched that title. And he'd have somebody write it. And that's how these movies got made. It was it was driven by what he thought would, you know, have a, a, a scary image that you could put on the title. That you could put on a poster. That you could put in a trailer and people, that would draw people in. It was very, I wouldn't call it scientific, but it was Roger's instinct on, you know, what kind of, you know, horror, terror, sex, you know, those kind of, you know, scary monsters. And of course he was also, Alien had been a success, so he was working off that. Mm -hmm. Star Wars had been a success, so he was working off that. Whatever he could do to try and, you know, capitalize quickly on what he thought was the prevailing kind of um, cultural avenue of interest. Mm -hmm. And at that time, science fiction was very popular. He bought the studio so that he could make these science fiction movies, which could all be made you know, on sets, he would reuse this, you know, kind of try and reuse pieces of sets for other other movies, wasn't dependent on locations. Um, Android was very different. Um, It started out as an idea by two carpenters at the studio Mm -hmm. um, who wanted to make movies and had this idea of a kind of, you know, they started with basically a creation myth story, and said, "Okay, how can we make this in a way that Roger will, you know, make it? <laughs> you know, what can we do to to, to jazz it up?" But the, but they're but they didn't start with that idea of oh, we're going to sell a horror movie. They started with the idea of we want to make this kind of interesting idea about creation and and you know, obviously, man and machine. What's inte- what com- what 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 do we call humanity? What do we call intelligence? Um, and I think it's pretty. Obvious to say that if they had gone to Roger and said, We want to make this movie, he would have said, What do I need that? What do I need to buy your script for? <laughs> um, but they had, a, they had actually a much better idea. They went to, um, they knew some guys with money in Chicago, um, relatives of one of the producers,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and said, Look, we have the script. We're going to make this movie for half a million dollars. Do you want to put up half? Roger's mm-hmm. putting up the other half and then went to Roger one of the one of the producers Rupert Harvey was an accountant for Roger so mm-hmm. it was they had an in went to Roger and said we got these guys in Chicago with a quarter million dollars they want to make a movie do you want to go in with them we'll make a half million dollars we've got the script meanwhile I had directed second unit on um, planet of horror and I got the bug that I thought, okay, directing may be what, I'm, what I can do. Cause I had previously been a line producer for Roger. I had never directed, never thought that was in the cards for me. Never thought that was, you know, my strength. I thought, okay, I could do scripts. I, I could do schedule, I can do budget, I can hire a crew. I can do all the, the, the mechanics of making a movie. But when I started directing second unit, I got interested in directing for the first time. So I went to Roger and said, um, I'm interested in directing. And Roger chuckled and said, basically, I want you to write a script. If I like it, you can direct it. The title is Alien Sex Shocker. And the story, (laughs) really, and the story is aliens who kidnap human women for reproductive experiments. Well, I was in despair because on the one hand, Roger said I could direct this movie. On the other hand, it was Alien Sex Shocker. But i started work on the movie meanwhile because i had i was seen to be as the next in line Mm -hmm. the writers of android came to me and said we have this script how would you like to be how'd you like to direct this Mm -hmm. and you know it was kind of it was an early draft but even then it was clearly you know um had more ambition and uh more heart than alien sex shocker although i did have a really good take on alien sex shocker which uh <laughs> never got written but I'm, I'm still saving it because it's interesting to me um, so anyway there's a lot of this back and forth so i was working on on them with the script with don and jim and we were doing drafts of the script and the producers were going to chicago i said what do you say guys you know roger's gonna make this movie and back to roger what do you say roger these guys have the money you're gonna lose it and finally, both sides agreed mm-hmm. is kind of amazing. But they both thought, oh, well, I'm going to lose out if I don't if I don't uh, step on board now. So we had we got the money and um, Roger okayed the movie. So that's that's how it got made. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's not like the other movies that were being made mm-hmm. at the time. I see. Um, and. You know, we specifically went into it with the aesthetic that we didn't want it to really look like the movies that had been made at the time. There's been a lot of stuff written, which is actually not true that Android was made out of sets from Planet of Horror, Planet of Horrors or Galaxy of Terror. No, it was all it was all built from scratch. It was all built um, with the idea that would have design that didn't look like, you know, those movies. Um, and we'd do as much as we could with the money. But, you know, it was... It was a little bit of an outlier. And and Roger, he'd agreed to put up a quarter million dollars for, for his half of the movie, which would be domestic distribution. Um, but of his quarter million dollars, almost all of it was in kind, not in cash. In other words, mm. the studio, the equipment, you know, he had he had cameras, he had lights, he had grip equipment, he had the stage. Um, mm-hmm. so he had very little to lose, mm. you know? <laughs> He had very, very little investment in the movie, so um, it was kind of like he took a flyer on it.
0: Mm-hmm. So how much were you involved with the development of the script?
1: Um, they had—I I couldn't tell you in, in detail. Donnie and Jim had a—you know—the basic story of of the movie. Um, so, whatever, what, whenever I got involved, it wasn't—it wasn't significant changes. It was—it um, mm-hmm. was really just fine tuning at that point. No, the main—I think—the main thing that happened—that the main thing that happened between the time we got to go ahead and started shooting was the casting, because, a, um, Don Opper, who was one of the writers, is also starred in the movie, and mm-hmm. Roger did not want him to, to start the movie. He thought it was a bad idea, just in principle, that the writer would also be the actor. Mm-hmm. He thought, oh, there'd be rewrites on the set. It'll be a costly. It'll take time. You'll lose money because it's. Um, but eventually we prevailed. We did, we did have casting, we looked at other people. Um, but we finally, he finally agreed to let Donnie start in the movie. And the other thing was, um, we got the script to Klaus Kinski, mm-hmm. and he was it was interested in doing it, but he obviously cost more than our budget, than we had budgeted for. So that that was a little bit of a hiccup because um Klaus who was pretty well known at the time from the Werner Hartzog movies was not someone who's seen by Roger as a, as a, as a value added. He wasn't, it was there's no, no value in domestic U S market to have, to pay more for Klaus Kinski. Mm. So what we ended up doing was um, because the other, the other investors had foreign distribution, they saw value to having Klaus Kinski because mm. he's obviously a bigger name in Europe and, South America than he is in in the United States, so they put up the money, the additional money to pay for Klaus.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because um, you know when I tell people about the film, all I have to mention is the fact you know I just say Klaus Kinski is building an android, and like, <laughs> oh really?
1: <laughs> yeah, I think now it's people of a certain age. I, I don't think twenty five year olds know uh, much about uh, Klaus Kinski. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Probably. <laughs> um, yeah. It's interesting to hear about Don Opera because I think that he is so much the heart and soul um, of the movie. And I was going to ask you if um, he was always, um, you know, seen as the lead actor in the film. He's such an unusual choice, but he's such an his innocence, I think, really carries so much of that that story and that that character that he's playing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think I think um, if I knew more, if I knew more then about acting, I probably would have had my doubts because because Don was you know, Don had done a lot of theater. He came from a kind of theater background as did his brother, Barry, who was the producer. But, you know, if I knew, and I had seen him, you know, there was, was, um, I'd seen him in just a lot of theater in Los Angeles. Um, But I think if I had been um, a savvier director or producer, I would have thought, this is insane. (laughs) Trusting this movie to this, you know, unknown kind of goofy looking guy. But when Roger said no, my immediate instinct was to say yes, but yes, of course he has to. <laughs> and and then the the fact is that when we did audition people, it was clear that Don had a you know a much more profound understanding of the character, and that and he and I were in sync about the portrayal of the character. So mm-hmm. it became very easy to say you know he's the one who should do this. Mm-hmm. I mean you know if you think about getting this conundrum, when I think about this kind of movie and and creating androids. Um, that if you're going to create a human being, why would you create someone with obvious flaws? Why would you create <laughs> a perfect human being, mm-hmm. which presumably Dr. Daniel is trying to do with with his next generation? But I go back to you know, Jim Cameron was was doing um, you know his movie at, at, not long after this, and I remember when when it was like, yes, you can make this with Schwarzenegger. But yeah, that'd be interesting. You, You're you're creating an android who speaks English with an Austrian accent. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, leaving that aside.
0: I guess it makes him more
1: human. (laughs) Our doctor created an android that looked just like Don Hopper.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And his portrayal, I think, is so touching. Um, I think that's the part that I can really relate to his, you know, sort of, watching old movies and trying to sort of learn from them how to behave. I mean, that's, Mm -hmm. you know, I first saw the film as a teenager. Um, And I think that theme was something that I could really um, connect with just, you know, watching movies and thinking, okay, this is how the world works. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think that's, I think that's still true for a lot of people, You you know, especially if you're, maybe not be movies, it may be other media now, but, but that's that's how you see you know i love the story i I don't know if this is too arcane but um in the united states you know there's a lot of baseball players who come from latin america and central america and there's this kind of um i don't know if it's a myth or not but it's certainly based in the fact that that in the dominican republic there are baseball players who would come to the united states and they learn english by watching reruns of the tv show friends okay (laughs) And and the show was hugely popular, and it was translated mm. to Spanish. So first they'd watch it in Spanish, then they start watching it in English, and that's that was the model for you know <laughs> their vocabulary, their behavior was these six characters on Friends, and they'd so one would tell the other, oh, you should watch Friends, and they'd have DVDs of the of the show. <laughs> and mm. I just think oh, that's a that I love that idea of these you know twenty two year old Dominican baseball players watching Friends over <laughs> and over again. To,
0: that's a good image, yeah. <laughs> Um, I think there's a lot of pop culture in the film, not just the movies that he watches. I mean, he watches Metropolis, uh, he watches um, "It's a Wonderful Life." I think, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. but he also has this—I don't know—is it a Bogart imitation with a hat um, right. that he's doing? Um, so I was wondering if that sort of reflects your own relation to pop culture in a way.
1: Um, certainly, in a, in a, in a, you know, in broad strokes. Um, you know, I think, you know, when I try and think of what, what's influenced me, it's certainly the kind of movies that that um, I grew up to value. You know, it mm-hmm. doesn't mean all movies, but you know, you develop a taste and that sort of informs how you see things should be done. Um, mm-hmm. But it's also, you know, comes in combination with your own personality. I mean, for example, I just, I just saw Bardo, you know, the mm-hmm. new Alejandro Iñárritu movie. And it's very long and it's very um, dreamlike, very, very kind of um, at least selflessly dreamlike. And it's it's huge and it's very entertaining and it's very imaginative. And I just think, well, I could never make this movie. I can never make a movie like this. It's just so different from the movies that I aspire to making. So there's that. I mean, mm. not, not specifically, it's a wonderful metropolis, but, but certainly, you know, um, the, the idea behavior from what you see in those kind of, um, you know, things you treasure. Mm-hmm.
0: And there's also this, I think, very beautiful philosophical um, approach. I mean, what it, obviously, anytime you have a movie about um, like an Android, somebody who's sort of pretending to be human, you get into that question, what is it actually that makes us human? And I think mm-hmm. the question mm-hmm. how he's trying to figure out, um, yeah, just to behave or what love is, for example was that something that you sort of wanted to focus on or wanted to explore more in depth um as the filming went along
1: um i think if i knew more i would <laughs> um, and so so I, I can't say that it was like it was it was really you know we shot that movie in 20 days it was sort of a a, a a blur um so so what i would say is yes instinctively that's what i that's what i was going for you know when I think about what the story was, it's it's about gaining maturity, really. It's about you know transitioning from from youth to adulthood and and taking responsibility. And uh, it's not I wouldn't call Android a love story as much as it's a coming of age story. Mm-hmm. Um, so the emotion that he experiences is one that he's aspired to, but the, the 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 transition that he makes is is one that kind of catches him by surprise too. Mm-hmm. Which is the, going from um, not having responsibility to, to having to take responsibility, and you know, we talked, you know, for forty years about w- w- how much fun it would be to do the next, the next chapter of that life, the sequel to Android, which is when mm-hmm. he comes to Earth and and what what his uh, reaction to you know being on Earth would be. Mm-hmm. But that's that's another story that never got made.
0: <laughs> oh, that's the bit I would love to see that. Um, Don Opper Don um, coming back to the to Android. Too, yeah. I mean, <laughs> that would be amazing. So, what was it like working um, with so many people um, who are basically first timers in a sense? I mean, Don Opper, that was his first film that he made, and uh, Brie Hower, that was her first movie and maybe her only movie. Um, um, I'm not sure. And you were a first time director. Was that mm-hmm. something that. Um, um, I don't know, was that a, an, like an opportunity to sort of go about things in a different way or to experiment with, with stuff?
1: Only because we didn't know. I mean, like I said, what I, what I had learned, because, and especially because I hadn't gone to film school, I hadn't learned how you're supposed to make movies. What I had learned was how you don't mess it up, you know? Mm-hmm. So, and, and a lot of what Roger stressed um, in his own, I, I would call it an aesthetic because that's effectively what it is, you know what was important to roger was shoot fast Mm -hmm. get as much as you can because for him the movie was made in the editing room this is this is roger aesthetic which is you always get cutaways you always get a lot of coverage um so that if you have problems you can fix it later
2: Mm
1: -hmm. um and that that was very um know that was very ingrained in me like how do we move fast it wasn't we didn't we didn't spend a lot of time um you know talking about motivation or talking about a character's history all the stuff that you know to me now is like okay you've got to answer these questions Mm -hmm. but at that time the assumption was um, my assumption was okay here's a script the script is an outline for what we're going to do you understand the script, I understand the script, so let's go shoot. <laughs> and and it was only after you start seeing actors do things that aren't as you imagine, you go, oh, now why is that not working? And then, again, for me, now one thing I have to say that was um, to Roger's great credit, he insisted that um, before I or anyone, I, I believe, who hasn't directed before, before you start directing, you, you have to take acting classes. Mm-hmm. Um and I so I had done that for some time with with Nina Fosh and Jeff Corey, both of whom are, you know, were at that time very well known and established acting teachers. And, and so at least I had an understanding of the concept and how to communicate with actors. So that mm-hmm. that was a big help. Um, and I've seen a lot of directors, a lot of directors, especially because you know I spent a lot of time working in television, and a lot of directors in television come from um come from the crafts so assistant directors will get to direct mm-hmm. cameramen will get to direct sometimes editors will get to direct and they often have um, a very limited um and primitive vocabulary to talk to actors that's that's mm-hmm. a big problem and they rely on the actors to basically direct themselves so I credit Roger with forcing me to do that to, to have acting take acting classes and and so that when when there was Moments in performance, which I thought were not serving the scene or not not taking the direction that I had envisioned. i could I could communicate that. And that was mm-hmm. um that was a big advantage. Well, plus you know the fact that almost all the actors were basically completely inexperienced. I mean, Klaus and uh, Norbert Weiser, who plays one of the uh one of the comics, are the only ones who had any real acting chops. So, It gave me the opportunity to to express myself in a way that maybe a more experienced actor said, you know, what do you know about it? (laughs) Um, And with Klaus, it was very interesting because um, he, well, I'll tell you, I'll I'll tell you the story. The first day he worked, we'd been shooting for probably four or five days with the you know with the other cast before Mm -hmm. he appears and his first scene is the scene where he first shows up to the uh um, to the newly arrived Mm convicts and of course they were very excited because they were you know going to be working with Klaus Kinski and they had a lot of respect for him and and uh so we get on set we meet it's and uh I say okay let's rehearse action and Klaus walks in he says And he literally says, so I walk in, I come here, blah, 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 I walk out. (laughs) And we were all like, okay, let's rehearse. (laughs) So we do it again, action. Oh, I come in, I walk here, blah, 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 and I walk out. (laughs) So that was the re Center rehearsal. And I was kind of like stunned and the actors were very disappointed and kind of stunned. And so we mark it and light it and start shooting. And all of a sudden it's a performance. It was kind mm-hmm. of mind blowing because he's very casual and very almost to the point of cavalier, but once the cameras are rolling, mm-hmm. he's acting now, mm-hmm. you know, whether you think he was brilliant or terrible, it doesn't matter from my point of view. he was playing this doctor in a way that I thought was wow, that's what we that's what we wanted. Mm-hmm. So I was playing Dr. Daniel so um uh, gradually. I, you know, as I got more comfortable with him and and confident in myself, I, I I found myself. I okay can say, you know, let's try it this way, or you know, can you come in later, or you know, mm-hmm. any the the normal kind of things you do to try and get the performance and the and the the visual that you're that you're going for. But but that first day was like, you know, <laughs> stunning. <laughs>
0: And since he has a reputation for being difficult, I guess that must have been <laughs> quite daunting well, at that moment it,
1: it was it was terrifying i mean i I remember i was I was up nights worrying about what it's gonna be like you know is it gonna <laughs> but it was there was there was never anything like you know you can imagine of you know no, I'm not gonna do that or that's stupid or why would I do that or or not showing up or showing up late nothing he came he did he put on his costume, put on his makeup, and mm-hmm. It was it was fun. Ultimately, it's, it's, yeah. it's
0: an interesting performance, I think, because Kinski is usually known for these, you know, very big gestures, and I yeah, mean, he's so yeah. over the top in most of his roles. And in Android, he's really subdued and just very, um, I don't know, just a very quiet person. Actually, I think much more nuanced than many of the other films that he's done.
1: Yeah, and that was that was, um, again, it's it's kind of like you know, I guess you'd call it youthful arrogance. You know, we don't want to do it like everybody else has done it. We want to do it our way. Mm-hmm. So, so <laughs> we did you know, my, I, I guess it's still true. My feeling at the time was, and it still is, you have Klaus Kinski. You don't have to do super Klaus Kinski mm-hmm. because whatever he brings to it is going to make the audience have their own expectations of it. And he brings a lot of personality and he's even, even without doing much, he's got a lot of presence. Mm-hmm. So, so, so my, my thought always was, don't push for more of that. Put a lid on it, push for less of that and let what there is kind of seep out. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm, I, I, was, I was happy. Mm-hmm.
0: So how much did you follow the reviews when the film came out?
1: Um, the only ones that were really important were, um, I remember being very, very anxious about Variety because mm-hmm. that's tra- the trade the Hollywood trade paper. And that was the trade paper. And the critic for Variety was Todd McCarthy, who I had known from, you know, from my grad school days. Todd was a, um, you know, friends of friends. And, you know, I had I had friends from Chicago who were critics and Todd was a critic. And, and I really, he was one of the two or three people whose reviews I had always respected. You know, when I was working in Hollywood, I would always go to Variety reviews because I thought Todd really knew what he was talking about. So... I remember I, uh, after we'd screened it, I called him and I said, you know, did you see the movie and are you going to review? And he said, I am. And I said, can you, he said, I I can't, it's coming out tomorrow. Don't worry. Mm. And that was all he said. And it was, (laughs) and you know, his review, as I recall, it wasn't like, my God, this is, you know, the best movie since uh, Citizen Kane, but it was a, it was a very positive and I thought very fair review and, Mm. and, um, after that, it was really you know we we um we tried to position the movie, and it was, I think, in a way, we were about two years too early to really be, to be successful, mm-hmm. but we tried to position it as a um a kind of what would then be called an independent movie, you know mm-hmm. there was no such thing really as an independent movie when when this was made. It was um it wasn't really till like i think it was two years later. When Sex Lies and Videotape came out, mm. that um, there was an idea of an American independent movie scene, mm. um, and um, in '82, Alan Rudolph's first movie, which I can't remember the name of now, came out. It was kind of also in that strange. I think it was a. It was I think it was a studio made picture. But it had this very, you know, low budget indie vibe, and there are other movies, mm. of course. I mean, I, 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 I'm not saying that Android was the first, but but we were trying to position it as kind of an arty indie,
2: mm. and
1: it was seen as, you know, because it was a science fiction movie, and kind of cheesy, and it's in its visual effects, and and it came out of Roger's Studio. It was it was a uphill battle, mm. so when we could get into film festivals. Which we, you know, we got into a bunch of festivals, and we got into what you, you know, what you, the theaters you'd hope to get into, like the Waverly and in Greenwich Village. Then it could play, and those the people who saw it that way reviewed it positively, and then there were a lot, plenty of other views that just thought this is a you know, schlocky little, <laughs> you know, no budget movie without much going mm. for it, and so you know, mm. but really in terms of awareness. The one I was really waiting, the one that had me on the edge of my seat Mm -hmm. was that first review from Todd McCarthy.
0: (laughs) Variety, yeah. Yeah. Do you remember Roger Ebert's review?
1: I do remember it because we played at the Chicago Film Festival. I remember he was, I I couldn't quote it to you, but I remember it was sort of um, genially positive. Mm -hmm. You know, he kind of, kind of like, you know, sort of like a stray dog or a or a. Mm a dirty street urchin, you know, you kind of have affection for it, but it's not, you know, it's not a, a a champion, but you want to give it a, give it a pet, you know, scratch behind the ears and say good dog.
0: He kind of, he really admired it actually. I, I actually have the review here and he lists sort of all the tropes from the Roger Corman movies. Um, where he says uh, android follows certain new world science fiction traditions it is low budget it contains one inexpensive but instantly recognizable horror star it has scantily clad heroines it is shot on good-looking sets that owe more to imagination than money but in one key respect android steps outside the new world tradition this is a thought-provoking film (laughs) and the interesting part of (laughs) is sorry what
1: no, you're gonna say that's fantastic. I love that.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, he he even goes on. He he writes about uh, films made by uh, uh, first films made by directors that were showing a, a lot of promise. And he mentions George Lucas's THX. He mentions Steven Spielberg's um, Sugarland Express. He mentions Dark Star by John Carpenter, um, and the Martin Scorsese film uh, who said Knocking at My Door. And if you read that now, especially, you think, Wow, that's I mean. To, to put the film <laughs> in that sort of company, that's uh, I mean, sort of the biggest compliment that it could get, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that's good to hear. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so after you did android you made another film basically with the same crew city limits many Mm -hmm. of the the people that you worked on with android were returning to make city limits Mm -hmm. and i read um that there were two different versions of the film uh one screened with music by john Lurie, and then the the film that was released that was sort of recut and then had a different score and so i'm kind of thinking that there's a story behind this of that, that that something happened to the film, so to speak. Well, it's
1: it's 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 a it's kind of a sad story because um, mm. um, you know we had we all decided to stay together and and keep working. Um, we formed a company. The uh, the people who put money in Android put more money into uh, our partnership to kind of finance us to keep going. The next project we made um, was City Limits, and. We wanted to kind of expand our scope a little bit, get a little get a little bigger picture, but keep kind of in the, in a similar sort of you know thematic range. Um, I, I've got to say, I, I look back on uh, on City Limits with a, with a, a a lot of disappointment, and mostly in myself because I think um, it was quite frankly, I think there's more film that I can handle. I didn't really have the mm-hmm. have the skill. To tell the story in the way that it should have been told. Um we didn't have enough time. It was, it was shot almost completely at night. Mm. So everything took a lot longer. Um and the one thing that that I don't know about the one thing, but one certainly one of the things that it's that I think it fails at. And I I haven't seen the movie in in quite some time. Um, but what I remember pretty clearly is as an action movie, it's not very good. Mm. Um, and that's that's I think my failing as a as a director, not knowing really enough about what I needed to do to make the action more exciting. Um, and so we did screen we had and 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 John did the score and um, it it was great. It really was, but it was um a little bit of a scapegoat for for some of the, um, the failings of the movie mm-hmm. um because it was weird. And it was, you know, if you know his music at all, you can imagine that it was um, somewhat atonal, um, mm-hmm. definitely uh, had a lot of personality. <laughs> and for, for maybe a stronger movie, it would have worked. Mm-hmm. But this movie needed help. So so we ended up, um, we, did, we did a couple of days of reshoots, did a recut, new score. You know, much more mainstream score, and the movie still didn't work, in my opinion. Huh. Um, so it's kind of a um, it's kind of a cloud over over my past, and I and I, I think of it like, oh, that was a missed opportunity. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's I difficult mean, I still... to. Sorry. No, go ahead. Um, I was just going to say it's difficult to actually follow the storyline of City Limits and that's th- those are the moments where I kind of feel like maybe something is missing there because um, when you go from one scene to the next just sort of at, at, at many points you're never quite sure how you get from A to B and then you have a voiceover that sort of explains the backstory of how that happened and you're like oh did I miss that um, was that in the <laughs> movie I think that's and that's why I thought, okay, maybe that, you know, essential scenes were sort of never finished or cut out of the movie or something like that.
1: I don't know, but I don't know about that. I don't think it's like scenes that were cut out of the movie. I just think it was um, my own inexperience as a storyteller mm-hmm. to um, to to just not be clear enough on what the story was. I, I think, you know, as a, um, when I think back on the, on the concept of it, the sort of, um, you know three musketeers against this um ruthless corporation okay that that's that makes sense i can understand that but but it was not realized in a way that i think was successful mm-hmm. so
0: yeah i think it has a, a lot of good aspects in it um i mean the cast obviously is is great you have so many wonderful actors in that movie And just in terms of the details, I mean, there's a lot to enjoy, just, you know, the scene where Don Upper um, is eating the cat food, and Mm -hmm. um, they're sort of trying to explain to him that he doesn't have to do that. (laughs) Why? (laughs) Because we're not cats. Um, Those kind of details, I think... um, those are really enjoyable um and i think in terms of of themes it also it connects in some way with with android the theme of certainly young people rebelling against um you know their upbringing or uh, they want to sort of leave home and venture out in the world to to seek adventures and that kind of thing
1: i i again i i uh it's mostly it's mostly full of regrets for me that that it didn't mm-hmm. it didn't succeed and that that you know I, I pretty much that I didn't succeed in in, in making that show work,
0: mm-hmm. yeah, so did you the follow the review did you follow the reviews to that film um at all?
1: Um, again, I think I did initially, but I knew you know I knew from the from as soon as we started screening it that it was not working mm-hmm. even after we you know even after we redid it, it was it was. It was just not going to be a good movie <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was I, I really i really wanted to just kind of move on mm-hmm. at that point
0: yeah and then i think you moved on to tv and um i think you, you i think those were the two theatrical features that you made right
1: yeah i mean android i mean um, city limits was, was uh almost killed my career so Mm -hmm. it was it was it was um it's very difficult to to look back on it because um android you know as much as i'd love to to believe that ebert was right and i was in you know going to take follow the trajectory of george lucas and steven spielberg um city limits put the brakes on that and i couldn't get a job um and it was only again another stroke of of luck and coincidence that um michael mann who was the um creator and producer of uh the tv show miami vice had been making um his film the keep in london mm-hmm. when android was released there and android had played at the london film festival and had come out of it you know with a lot of positive press and played commercially in london and he had seen it there
2: mm-hmm
1: so um when he started miami vice um i don't know if you know the show it was a very very popular mm-hmm. tv show in the u.s and starting about 85 or 86 and when he when the first show first went on it was much more conventional and i think it was after five or six episodes that he decided he needed to mix it up and he fired one of the lead actors, he replaced the cinematographer, and his, his, his other solution was no more TV directors. <laughs> he thought that the TV directors at the time were very conventional and uninteresting, and he wanted to have people who didn't come from television.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Which, um, this is at Universal Studios, which is the most conservative at that time studio in Hollywood. So the idea of having directors who hadn't done television meant you were either going to have commercial directors who, that meant, you know, the reputation of a commercial director was a guy who spends a lot of money in a very short amount of time. (laughs) Not what you offer television. Um, Or first-time directors, which is almost unheard of in in, Mm -hmm. universal television. Um, So he was trying to walk this fine line. There was no other, you know, there weren't really... You know really hot film school graduates who could say, "Oh, they're, they they could do an episode of television. There was no channel for people to start their career in television. So someone like me who actually had feature credits
2: mm-hmm.
1: had a credibility. and the fact that Michael had seen my movie in London in a kind of positive environment, mm-hmm. um, it didn't mean I got a, you know they they came looking for me. But it did mean that there was a series of coincidences. One of which was, okay, first, city limits had failed and I was unemployed. Two, I had a friend of a friend who was friends with Michael Mann's wife. <laughs> so at some party, he's talking about his, you know, TV show and my name and Android gets mentioned and um so my agent i actually i had an agent my agent gets a call inquiring about my availability to do a tv show miami vice now my agent was a feature agent and kind of looked down on television Mm -hmm. and mentioned this to me but never had the kind of um skill drive but never really pushed and said okay let's get it let's get booked but meanwhile i had heard they're asking about me in Miami Vice, which was, you know, a super hot show at that time. I mean, there couldn't have been anything better. <laughs> so um now remember that the, the combination, I am broke, unemployed, no prospects, and and basically living on the hope that this is actually a, a real thing. You know, I'm telling my friends, I'm gonna direct Miami Vice. So I go to a party once this this summer, this is 1983, I think, or 84, 84 and uh the host says oh aaron you're going to be directing the episode of miami vice you should meet my friend dan so i meet dan who is dan pine who is a i think at that time he was the co-producer or the story editor he was was like the number two writer on the show
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and uh we get to talking, we hit it off. And he goes to work on Monday and says, uh, so I met this guy, he says he's directing an episode of Miami Vice (laughs) to the producer, not to Michael, but to the line producer. And clearly my name had been on the list because he knew my name and said, what'd you think? Mm -hmm. And Dan said, oh, he seemed all right. (laughs) And that literally led to them calling me up and saying, okay, do you want to do an episode? Mm -hmm. So you know, the coincidences of Michael Mann seeing Android in London, my friend of a friend who knew his wife and mentioned my name. My other friend who knew a writer on the show mm. and introduced me to him. And, you know, and on and on. But anyway, that led to me getting a job on Miami Vice and having a career in television. What, mm. You know, Miami Vice was really popular. And if you if you it's it's it's, you know, every. Few years is a show that everybody knows about. I mean, I guess I don't know what it would be now. Maybe Stranger Things or mm. you know The Sopranos or Breaking Bad. Whatever it is, is a show that like, oh, if you did that show, you've got to be good. You know, mm-hmm. Game of Thrones. It's kind of like a, a guarantee of credibility. So that once once I not only directed an episode but got asked back to do another episode and another episode. I had credibility and in, in certainly in action, you know, police television, police mm-hmm. shows and action shows in a way that city limits couldn't destroy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean,
0: Miami Vice has become such a cult classic, you know, even over the years. I mean, a friend of mine has just bought the fifth version of the complete series and a new blu-ray set he already has four sets and he's just bought a fifth version of it um
1: well tell me do they can they use the music that they originally had because because i remember the first set they put out they had replaced a lot of the music because they had bought rights for broadcast but not for mm -hmm. dvds so you know miami vice was always full of you know very timely hit songs Mm-hmm. That then they couldn't use when they did the DVD releases.
0: Yeah, I think they restored them for the latest version. Um, I mean, it's a European set, and they also talked about how they restored some of the dubbing. And you know, for German television back at that point, uh, the episodes were always cut a little bit short. You know, they would always cut out a couple of scenes to you know make it fit into a, a, a TV slot. So a lot of the uh-huh. shows from from the '80s, you watch, you know, Knight Rider or Miami Vice or what have you um all those 45 minute shows um there are always a couple of scenes missing and that means they never got dubbed and um people in germany never saw those episodes in full and with this set i think they restored all of it and so i think they also restored the entire soundtrack and everything so
1: wow really a painstaking
0: great. painstaking effort that they did with the show so um it still lives on i mean that's a, it's really great i think so over all those years that you that you uh, worked on television, did you ever have any plans to go back and do a theatrical feature? Did you, um...
1: uh, plans is, a, is, a, is a, not the word I would use. I mean, it was always mm-hmm. the, the, the goal. You know, it says more about my knife take than anything else, but I thought I'll go direct an episode of Miami Vice and I'll do a great job and that'll get me back into movies and mm-hmm. I'll be hireable as a movie director. Um, and at that time, that was... A pipe dream because um there was a very you know strict line between um it was was almost like a cast system there's commercial directors there were comedy tv directors there were drama tv directors and there are feature directors and Mm -hmm. to go from to go from television to feature was almost impossible um not completely obviously people have done it but it was really um once you were a TV director, it was kind of like that was your mm-hmm. thing. Now, w- one thing that uh, um, some of my contemporaries did end up doing and were very successful for a while were going into TV movies,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and it's it was some hybrid because it's not really a movie and it's not a TV show because you're you know it's a it's a stand it's a standalone. But even so, it's very difficult for even those people who are doing TV movies to get to do features because it was seen as you know you're very much a journeyman controlled by the network and mm. the studio and and don't have a vision which is what was valued in as a for mm. a feature director um so to make a long story short i tried and never could get anything off the ground
0: mm-hmm. i see
1: and um What I did do was start getting more into producing television, producing and directing. Mm -hmm. So um, the the fellow I mentioned earlier, Dan Pine, who was the writer on Miami Vice, he and I became partners after that and had a deal at at Paramount for most of the 90s um, developing television shows. So other writers' ideas, our ideas, you know, we would we would develop them for Paramount. And Paramount would take them out and pitch them, and um, my job was at that time it didn't exist, but it kind of became a job in the in the late '80s, early '90s as the television what they call a producer director. Mm-hmm. So you're you're a you're a producer from a directing background. So you're basically a creative producer. What they had in television up till that time was they might have directors who are on staff. For example, I directed um, several early episodes of the first season. The first, it was a half season of Quantum Leap,
2: mm-hmm.
1: which was a, a um, TV show. And because I had a background in production and I knew, you know, I was very, I felt very comfortable with budgets and schedules and hiring staff and and that kind of thing. What I want to do is combine those skills and be. A producer on a tv show that I, that you know that i wanted to be invested in that i could direct sometimes and basically prep the other directors and make sure that they kind of in the aesthetic of the show mm-hmm. i tried on miami vice to get that job in fact which they didn't really have that job <laughs> but i tried to create it with you know with dan's help um And it never happened. And then he and I became partners. And I kind of did that job on the shows that we did in as early as, you know, 87, 88. Mm -hmm. And and then it sort of evolved into a job. The studio saw there was a a value to having a director who would be on staff and direct, you know, out of a a normal broadcast run at that time was 22 episodes. So you direct, you know, three or four or five Mm-hmm. but you would be available so if actors had an issue if the directors you know were getting into trouble with time or with location if the writers you know if something wasn't working you need to be rewritten you have someone who's present who has that experience um so we formed a company and we and and basically that's what i did for the next 20 years is mm-hmm. direct television and produce and direct Mm-hmm. and in a way that's it was you know if you if you like a show it's um it's a great way to have a lot of creative control and satisfy your creative outlet but have responsibility to a bigger picture mm-hmm. and, and, a, and a show that has you know ambitions it's 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 very satisfying
2: mm-hmm
0: yeah I mean, especially in recent years, I mean, television has become so much more um in terms of the storytelling so much bigger and more ambitious. Um, yeah,
1: yeah, I mean, television, sometimes for worse, but mostly for better it's 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 become a medium where you could take stories that wouldn't fit in a movie mm. that that are too big, too expansive, and draw them out and tell them over time. I mean, what's happened, uh, you know, the, the bad news is sometimes they go beyond what they're sort of, the limits of the story they're trying to tell and then it becomes mm. embroidery. But, um, you know, when it works, you can get really, really deep into character and deep into, mm. into consequence and, and it's great. Mm. So certainly, you know, the, the perception of t- what television is and what it can be has, you know, changed tremendously in the past 30 years.
0: Mm, absolutely and also that that sort of class system that you talked about that yeah. feature film directors didn't do TV or vice versa and these days you see so much of it that people switch back and forth and TV isn't seen as some sort of stepchild to um to uh, what the theaters are showing. I think actually we're seeing sort of the, the different trend in a, in a, in a sense, right?
1: <laughs> um, yeah, it's gone, it's gone, it's gone to the extreme. I mean, it's, it's, it's very disturbing. I mean, I, I really like going to the movies and, mm-hmm. and, and to see that, I mean, especially now with all the, um, you know, the end of the year, you get a lot of movies that are up for awards and it's hard to see a movie in a movie theater.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean,
1: I mean, literally I'll give you an example banshees of an Mm -hmm. martin mcdonough movie i want to go see it there's not a theater in my neighborhood that's Mm -hmm. where the movie's playing you know i just i can't find it
2: Mm -hmm.
1: um now what you can do is you know a lot of the studios in la they'll have screenings for for awards reasons so -hmm. you can find a screening you can go to but if i want to go okay see you christian i'll talk to you later it's now two o'clock okay I can go to a movie at three o'clock, but what you're going to see is Top Gun Maverick or, um, you know, animated Christmas movies, whatever, you know, if you want to see Mm -hmm. Banshees of an I got to go to who knows where it's very, it's, it's the whole Um, thing, the whole thing that it's, that it's that, that seeing a movie in a movie theater seems, seems to be coming more and more in danger is very disturbing because mm -hmm. my feeling is if you can push a pause button while you're watching a movie, something's wrong.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you're so easily distracted when you're watching it at home. I I still go regularly to the theater, and um, there's a theater just in my neighborhood. Um, and I know the um, the person who runs the theater. I just talked to her, and she said it's terrible because people are just not coming to the movies anymore. Um, they have, you know, every once in a while they have this little sort of hit movie. I mean, she's doing what you would call an art house. Uh, theater. So yes, Mm -hmm. she would uh, show the uh, the Banshees movie um, and not the Marvel movies or stuff like that. Um, So every once in a while, there's a movie that really draws an audience. Um, But mostly, I mean, oftentimes you go there and there are like 10 people in a 200 seat uh, room. So
1: yeah, um,
0: she was kind of desperate, actually, when I talked to her.
1: It's it's really, um, it's disturbing, especially because, I mean, for me, my my favorite place see movies was a movie theater that was like five minutes from my house kind of like but it was a multiplex a 12 screen but but mm-hmm. i don't know what you'd call it it's kind of like a premium multiplex they 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 always had good sight lines it, the theaters were big enough that you could you know you, you weren't sitting in little you know mm-hmm. five row shoebox. um there the sound was always good they, they were clean the projectors were in good shape the screens were in good shape and they closed during the pandemic and they have not yet reopened and the company that owned them went bankrupt mm-hmm. so it's just like we're, we're waiting and praying this place will reopen mm-hmm. because we want to go there to see movies mm-hmm. um you know i have i have a um I, i'm very lucky because i'm a member of the directors guild the directors guild has a maybe the best theater in in the world but mm-hmm. certainly certainly a, a great movie theater and i can go see movies there when they screen them but you know that's three a week Mm. you know if i can't go i can't go but but it's it's really disturbing because i think it it diminishes i mean i've seen so many movies that i go to the movie theater and i think man it would not be the same to watch this at home mm. Mm. it wouldn't i mean it's 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 the the focus the scope the sound the demand you know the movie makes a demand of you and you're there to, yeah. to accept it
0: yeah yeah, you're sort of overwhelmed by it and you share it with other people. I also like that kind of communal um, experience, you know, when you go and see a comedy, that's really funny. And you're in a room with a hundred people and everybody's really laughing. And I mean, that's the kind of feeling that you don't get at home, never. Yeah. So um, I don't have any more questions about (laughs) City Limits and I don't want to take up too much of your time, um, Aaron, but... um, just want to thank you for uh taking the time to talk about those two movies and you know go back memory lane with me and uh really dive into those early years. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm I'm uh I I can't say it's what I live for because <laughs> <laughs> I'm always thinking about what the next movie is and what the next TV show is. Yeah. But um but it's you know it's always it's 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 nice to think that you know what you did 30 years ago or 40 years ago it still has a life or still has someone who's interested in seeing it and that's kind of what we do it for is hopefully that you know the same way that I watch you know movies from the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s you know you want you want it to, to have a life so I appreciate you talking to me about it and I appreciate your interest and your enthusiasm.